the integrity of data is paramount, absolutely, mission data, data related to the supply chain, it's absolutely paramount. I can expect we will see ransomware attacks against space systems, particularly against anything that's time critical. We've already seen that sort of thing happen. You know, we saw an attack on the nation's energy supply with Colonial Pipeline. What if something like that were to happen on a time or mission critical space system? So I expect that. I expect to see the theft of intellectual property. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. This week's podcast is from Colorado Springs, Colorado, from the Value of Space Summit, the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center, also known as the Space ISAC, organized and hosted the event. The Space ISAC is focused like a laser on cybersecurity and space assets, but with the assistance of its broad commercial space membership, it is growing into a robust all-threats security information source. It has an impressive all-threats watch center that prepares for and responds to vulnerabilities incidents, and threats to space systems. It does this by disseminating timely and actionable information to its members. And the membership is international and includes big and small space and cybersecurity companies and universities. So it's no surprise that the event drilled down on cyber threats. But the panel I led was a bit different and focused on the critical challenges to protecting human habitats on orbit, on the moon and beyond, and the approaches from the perspective of value, because that's the title of the event. So joining me for this discussion is Axiom Space's Director of In-Space Infrastructure and Logistics, Jason Aspiotis. His company has multiple contracts with NASA and other space agencies and plans to have an operational commercial space station in orbit by the end of this decade. And Sam Visner, the Space ISAC's just-named board chair. I apologize for the sound quality. It is admittedly quite rough. But I'm sure you will enjoy the conversation and find that it asks more questions than it answers. Here's our conversation. Tomorrow, right? So let me explain in simplified terms the arc of our space-based human economic activity, or what my favorite space economist, who's not here with us today, unfortunately, George Pullen, he likes to call this the fifth industrial revolution, right? So first, we'll have Earth-orbiting commercial space stations. Next will come human habitats in the cislunar region, in space and on the moon's surface. And if we get those right, and that's an if, if we get those mostly right, then we can talk about establishing human economic activity on Mars and then in the beyond. To illustrate that future that it's now, I want to reach back into what Ronald Burke of the Aerospace Corporation told us yesterday. He said that in the Cislunar region, there is a village of 80-plus companies working within and across 12 layers of critical infrastructure. But if you look closer to home, at our immediate proving ground, that's this decade in the Earth orbits, the number of commercial and government players and the sheer value of space-based commercial activity that is about to take place, well, we 
what was really a sleepy village is about to turn into a boom town. It's going to have industrial parks, research laboratories, medical facilities, gas stations, and tourist destinations. So before we get much further down the road, let's take a moment and give my panelists the opportunity to introduce themselves. And Jason, you should start. Give us your first, your last, what you do, where you do it. The basics. The whole thing. Well, not the whole thing, but you know, I mean, maybe later. I'll start with, um, I'm Team Edward. Um, <laughs> Jason Aspio is here. Um, thank you for having me. This is a wonderful panel and a wonderful event. Um, I'm Director of Axis Space for In Space Infrastructure Logistics. Um, bit of a dubious title, but what it actually means is um, I look at all the things that want to do the Axis Station for in space uh, infrastructure for data, including um, cybersecurity. Uh, other use cases like auto transit vehicles using the space station for you know, parking and hub and other kind of interactions, and also in the future of in-space servicing and some manufacturing ISAM. Uh, you know, we see space stations as a stepping stone towards unleashing the potential economic and technological of ISAM. So those are the kinds of things I look at. Uh, I've been in the industry for 20 years, and you know, cyber has not been my thing per se, but um, since I joined Axiom, it's become my thing because, correctly so, uh, without humans there is no space economy. And that's a term coined a few years back by NASA official. I won't mention his name, but I completely agree with that. Rings true based on what Ron and others have said the past two days. Um, you know, the, the DIU has released these reports the past few years, the, the State of Space Industrial Base report. Every single one of them talks about humans in space being sort of North Star vision for this country in our national interests. And again, um, growing human populations core to acts in space. Our CEO will talk about the vision of 100 people living and working in Oldham City by 2040. And going back to the point of you know having this, this town full of industry um, on the moon, you know, we believe what we're building, not global, but it is the stepping stone towards that as well. We will have several humans, we'll have facilities to support humans, we will have many factories, we'll have data infrastructure, um, refueling, kitchens, the, the toilets, the nasty stuff as well, right? So we'll build the whole gamut of infrastructure required to support long-term human um, presence in, in low orbit, just lunar moon and beyond. So excited to be here, looking forward to questions and answers. Thank you. I'm Sam Visner. I'm the uh, Vice Chair of the Board of Directors of the Space ISAC. And uh, I want to, again, compliment the Space ISAC team for the superb job they've done in organizing and, uh, and executing this conference. I'm also a tech fellow at the Aerospace Corporation, which is a federally funded research and development center, which is focused on ensuring the success of the National Space Enterprise. Um, I didn't get involved in space activities until relatively recently when a colleague of mine uh, said, you know, there's a meeting, there's a place called the Space ISAC, there's a briefing, you ought to see it, there's a paper you ought to read, and then one day, you know, I was on the board, and then one day I was vice chair. I mean, my experience in space is that, in essence, was watching, you know, Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk and, and the rest um, in, the 19, uh, in the 1960s you know, on Starship uh, Enterprise. I never thought I would have any particular involvement. 
Um, my point of view is, is my own, but I'm going to share it with you. Um, in addition to all of the other things I do, I've been teaching at Georgetown University as an adjunct, OASX, for those of you who are familiar with the university. And I've had the privilege of working with a lot of outstanding young people, and there are some truly outstanding young people in the room here today. And they've given me a sense of optimism. That's not always easy to come by, given the news and given the, uh, what, what we face as a country and what the world faces today. But yet, if one meets a lot of the young people we are, in fact, bringing up in this country, and in the countries who are our partners and allies, some of whom are represented here, I'm grateful for that, there is a reason to be optimistic. These people are working hard. They're very smart. They have good ethics. They're people of good character. They're interested in the future, and they want a better future than, 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 uh, uh, than they would otherwise have if they just left it up to us or they were indifferent. They're not. And the space field also attracts those kinds of people. I haven't met anybody here at Voss whom I would regard as an indifferent human being. You're here because this is exciting. This is important. Jason made a point I want to echo. As we, as we say, if I had a hammer, we call that in public speaking, a hammer point, right? And that is that among the values, you know, the value of space, this is the value of space summit, is in fact the value to a country's destiny. It's a value to us as a people. It is a value to, to where we stand as a great power and where essentially the, 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 the world's democracies stand together as a continuing movement of progress. That's a value that isn't always easy to quantify economically. But in, the way it may be the, in a way, it may be the most important value that we face. There are a lot of challenges to that value, and we're going to talk a lot about them. There is, for example, no real treaty that relates to cybersecurity. And since space systems are increasingly entwined with cyber systems, although the space treaty has held up pretty well, right, the, the Outer Space Treaty from 1964, and there haven't been kinetic attacks against other countries' satellites, so we've seen tests that could presage that. Norms for, space, norms for cyber systems essentially don't exist, and even though the United States and others have joined the Paris call, that's not a formally implemented treaty, and we don't yet have real norms, and therefore we are facing terrific challenges in the security of the space systems that we have today and that we're going to be putting into orbit and that we're going to be putting on in cislunar space and beyond. We're going to need to work very hard to solve those problems because in the absence of those norms, countries, adversaries, and criminals have felt free, free to operate in cyberspace and free to operate in many cases without, without impunity. That needs to stop, and we need to work on that problem because as space and cyber systems become more interdependent, our, the security of our space systems is going to depend on the success of the work that we do. So, as this is the Value of Space Summit, let's put aside the cyber risks for a minute and talk about value, right? We're talking about science value, economic value, cultural value, national bragging rights value, national defense value. Jason, how do you explain the value that these multiple commercial space stations that are in the pipeline, like your Axiom Space Station, will generate for the fifth industrial revolution. And you may also like to give us a painfully brief overview of Axiom Station's timeline for achieving full operational capability. Yeah. Happy to. 
also on the timeline, then go to specific examples of value that we believe will be generating. Our first module goes up in 26, attaches the note to the ISS. Uh, we have a module thereafter every year, uh, up to number four, which happens to be around 29, 2030, uh, which likely will be when the ISS starts to go through uh, its decommissioning phase, which point we will um, detach and become the world's first uh, free-flying across space station. So that's four modules, um, and then, of course, expansion thereafter, which at this point is, is in the you know, conceptual phases, but that's the plan and the vision. So as far as value, right, so we look at several markets as part of active station, right? So we all know about international missions, which we have been doing already as part of the ISS. Uh, we have done two, we've got a third one coming in January, and the fourth one being planned for later 2024. Private astronaut missions are not just about sending humans to space, right? We don't use the T word, tourism. Um, we, we send people that want to go work and do research and add value in, in the context of being up in the space station, right? So, an example of that, an example of that is a recent uh, MOU or I think or, or contract was the third with Hungary. Um, MOU with ESA. With ESA, and then also Hungary, I thought, also has plans on going through Axiom to go to the International and, and Space Station. Exactly. Just so something, I just wanted to give you all something you know, tangible so you can you know, look it up and see how this is working. We, we have public relation, relationships with several countries around the world that, again, want to send people up there to um, well, start and kickstart their human space aspirations in the context of working and doing research and adding value to their respective economies and the global economy in general. So every PAM mission we do has 25, 30 research payloads spanning in space manufacturing for advanced materials, pharmaceuticals, cancer research, and then more traditional space tech, vertical computing, and ISAM stuff. So that's one area of market potential where access station on the space station will have value. Um, the other one is sort of a segue from what I just mentioned for PAM missions, building factories in space, right, where you leverage the space environment and lack of gravity to manufacture materials, biotech, pharmaceuticals that you otherwise can't possibly make on Earth because the phenomenology is different. So that's a, that's a big area that NASA has been looking at for the past 70 years, part of the ISS, an area that we will continue to grow um, and hopefully accelerate to scale and commercialization in the next seven years, or in this decade. Um, the other areas have to do with what I focus on, which is leveraging the infrastructure we're building, like space station like satellites, fairly large structure. We have the luxury of real estate, ample electrical power, ample thermal management, so you can use it as a pretty robust piece of infrastructure that can support other things like on-orbit compute data processing, um, like orbit transfer vehicles, like refueling, like ISAM. So those are sort of three main areas we look at as far as power generation. Um, with tangible economic benefit and tangible benefits to civil, commercial, and national security priorities of this nation. And, and have you guys run the numbers? I mean, do you have like a ballpark number of value that you think that when the station is fully operational that it might actually generate on an annual basis? It, it's not something I'm going to disclose publicly, but that is part of our financial forecasts and it closes the business case. How many digits? Right. So, Sam, I'm tossing this next one to you. Uh, as you 
just said, you know, there are you know lacks of norms in cyber. So let's tackle that critical challenge. And that's the rules of the game. While a bit dated for space, we do have the Outer Space Treaty. And there are some traditional but not codified norms of behavior like you really shouldn't attack our ICBM tracking satellites, right? Because uh, we might think that we're under attack and act accordingly. But Sam, do we have a treaty for the cyber domain? Do we have norms of behavior that are applicable to the intensifying merging of cyber and space? Sam, set us up. Well, I think I'm the one who just got set up. But <laughs> that's fine. I live in Washington, I'm used to it. Um, shortly, the short answer is that we do have a treaty called the Outer Space Treaty, and more or less, we've seen countries abide by it, mostly because space systems have been seen as critical, and in many cases, strategic national assets. And deterrence, for, you know, deterrence relies on a number of things, not the least of which is not interfering with another country's assets so that they believe that they're under attack, the miscalculation occurs and something really bad happens. And that, the norms associated with that, right? Norms are how you behave, a treaty codifies it. Norms operate on the basis of we know you've done something bad, you will be punished and you are therefore deterred. Don't you cross that line. You will pay for it, you'll be really sorry if you do. In cyber, there really are no treaties. There are things like the USEU privacy framework, which, which provide certain obligations to safeguard privacy or, 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 or PII, right? Personally identifiable information. But in fact, the only treaty that really exists is not a treaty yet, it's the Paris call uh, that, that the French government and Microsoft put forward. The US did not sign it and join it initially. We've joined it uh, subsequently, but it is a call for the establishment of norms in cyberspace. It is not a binding treaty. But it is an attempt to establish a baseline of behavior. And eventually, if that baseline of behavior should hold, there will become ways of detecting violations of that baseline of behavior, attributing those violations, and punishing those violations, and therefore deterring those violations. That has not yet occurred. If, uh, if you listen to carefully to Joel Francis's excellent, Joel, you're still here, right? Wave at us is excellent presentation, you will see that cybersecurity does not yet have norms that are being deterred, that are being enforced. It just isn't happening. Now, as we move from space systems that are a few national critical, national assets of strategic use to essentially systems that are more commoditized and are used more broadly, the question is whether or not these systems which A, support a global cyber environment, right? With, with new 5G backlinks being put up all the time, and companies like Viasat and Blue Origin and others are, are building out these systems, and B, depend on cyber systems. And C, we've determined, even though this debate as to whether or not space systems are a critical infrastructure debate, where a rather turgid debate where we're admiring the question, we've already determined that all other critical infrastructures depend on space, and they're all cyber. The fact that we lack norms means, and a treaty, it means that we should anticipate vigorous attacks, vigorous attacks against our space systems. And we have seen those. As I noted yesterday, the attack against Ukraine was presaged by a cyber attack against Viasat, 
And we should expect to see more of this, so we're going to have to be protecting these systems. And I want to make a point that among the things we're going to need to do is to protect not just the cyber systems on which our space systems depend, but the cyber systems that we'll be using for like additive manufacturing in space, where a very subtle change in the software can change a part and change, for example, the density of a part causing it to fail or fail more quickly than it should. So there are many things that need to be done. I wanted to answer a question you didn't ask. As you're thinking about, you think about the value space, which is an old trick you learned in Washington. Thank the questioner for the question, tell them how excellent it was, go off, answer some other question, and then again compliment them on the question, which I will do, by the way, in just a moment. Uh, but there are three ways, in my view, of thinking about the value of space. There really are. I mean, at least one way of looking at the value of space is the way in which we've already tried to describe it. The second way of looking at, well, I guess maybe four of them, the second way is, is to look at what we call the absolute value of space, which is the new industries that are going to be developed. And I think Jason and his firm are going to be creating value and new industries that we have not even valued yet. Although hopefully, you know, as their business case closes, we'll see that come to reality. The third is what I would call sort of the derivative value, and that is space systems are now so intertwined with every other aspect of our economy that the loss of those systems would be a terrible loss to our national economy and to the global economy. And I'm not talking about unique space business, I'm just talking about the value that would be lost from every other sector. And then I guess there's one last piece that's very difficult to describe, but for those of you who are old enough to remember when the first PC showed up, and a few of us do, a lot of executives said, I don't know what I'm going to do with this darn thing. What do I need this, this fancy typewriter for? And maybe I don't want it in my office because it'll look like I'm not important enough to have a secretary because the secretary gets a typewriter. That's what happened. And yet, really smart people said, I don't know what this thing is going to do. I want one. I'm going to figure it out. And they created value from something where they didn't even know what the requirement was. Much of what's going to happen in space, in my not-so-humble view, I guess, is going to happen from things we don't even anticipate. We're going to build systems and we're going to find out that we can do things with those systems we didn't even anticipate. My guess is that's going to happen on board your space station. That's a value that we can't quantify yet, but if you take a look at the information technology revolution, right, it started, you know, the, the current digital revolution started with the proliferation of devices in the hands of people who had no idea what they would do with them, but they decided to go and find out. And I think that value is going to be potentially as great as anything else. I want to take you back, though, to the lack of norms. How will the lack of norms in the cyber domain affect the space domain? Or should we be thinking more in terms of establishing norms, binding, non-binding, something of that nature that really does combine the two? A norm is only real, or I mean, not to be an absolutist about this, but a norm is only real if people abide by it and they know that there are consequences for not abiding by it. Otherwise, it's a suggestion. And, and suggestions, you can do what you want with it, right? You know, a norm, a real norm is something that people abide by, both because they think it's the right thing to do and because they know that there are real consequences if they don't do it. All of the violation of norms that we're seeing right now are likely to be seen in space. For example, attacks on the integrity of data. And in space systems, the integrity of data is, the integrity of data is paramount. 
absolutely. Mission data. Data related to the supply chain. It's absolutely paramount. I can expect we will see ransomware attacks against space systems, particularly against anything that's time critical. We've already seen that sort of thing happen. You know, we saw an attack on the nation's energy supply with Colonial Pipeline. What if something like that were to happen on a time or mission critical space system? So I expect that. I expect to see the theft of intellectual property. Because even though there have been understandings between the, between the United States and China, and we're attempting to reach those understandings with other countries, the theft of intellectual property is still a really big problem. When norms become, when norms become real, it will be because we've done the work to improve attribution, and more work needs to be done. And we will have started to impose consequences on those who violate those norms. I don't think that's impossible. I do think we can do it, but I don't think we can linger and admire that problem much longer. And thank you for the question. <laughs> now it's believed that the value of the space-based, space-generated, space-consumed, commercial economy will be measured in billions, if not trillions, and it's going to have a variety of familiar sectors. FinTech, healthcare, or AKA biotech, and then there's new energy and big data, power and machine learning. And Don't forget agriculture, precision agriculture. Precision agriculture, that could also be biotech. I know it's different, but just in the space, lack of you know, gravity sort of area. But you know, there's in-space assembly and manufacturing. And outside of FinTech, much of the value and the products created will come from the 3D printers, great and small. And these printers, combined with machine learning and AI, operate in an Internet of Things environment. What are the risks to the value of the products to these connected and commercial sectors in a space station environment? And how do we do risk out of these systems for the entrepreneurs? investors, and those concerned with national security. And this is for both of you. So while Jason, you start, Sam, you are on deck. Wonderful question, thank you. Um, Sam gave us a really good example about a potential use case of a bad actor, right? Um, changing the algorithms of the 3D printing machine to change the underlying material structure to cause failure in the future, that would be bad. Um, IP is a big deal for a lot of the companies we work with, right, protecting the, their formulations, their techniques, their procedures, their machines. Um, so some area we see as, as a potential risk is bad actors trying to steal IP. So whatever what we can do to protect IP is, is crucial to maintaining an environment of uh, um, attractiveness for commercial players that will come part of that, right? So if I'm going to bring my payload and my manufacturing capability to space station, I want to make sure that my IP is protected. So that's an important area of consideration for us. Um, you know, fun functionality and, and maintaining operations without interruption, that's another area. Um, I, I'll, I'll give a little side spiel to the things we're doing on actually protecting our systems from cyber. Um, I have a team that's worked with some wonderful companies like Spyderoke and Matt back there. Where we're actively demonstrating um, defense cyber capabilities today. So we have a partnership at AWS, which is public, um, where we have a snow cone execution the ISS, where we're deploying a variety of capabilities in the IML, defense cyber, data fusion, etc. 
because we're taking an active approach as a company with our partners to not depend on you know, government flowdowns for how to do cyber for space stations. That, that doesn't exist. Probably won't exist for quite some time. So we're just inventing ourselves through design, testing, iterations, and just building up a knowledge base with our partners to do what we think is right today and in the future to protect our systems and our customers from potential cyber threats. So gave you a few examples of kind of what we're doing um, off the SAM. Sam, let me just throw something at you as part of this. Um, you know, I, I worry about counterfeit products, right? And, and I know that you guys are definitely thinking about it. Uh, at Axiom, I mean, you just have a new contract with Prada, for instance, and they're real interested in you know, killing off counterfeit, right? But when I think about counterfeit, products coming off of machines, off of printers, on space stations. I'm also thinking about the structural integrity of the nuts and bolts that these printers may be printing for expanding the footprint of that space station, of creating safe environments for our space entrepreneurs and our uh, laboratory technicians and researchers to, to do the work. Can you kind of elucidate more of what that risk is to the value? That's a reasonable concern, and it, and it has and it has several implications for value. First, if one doesn't have a certain amount of confidence in the in, in the provenance and origin of parts, the value of the parts themselves, even if they happen to work, which may be a problem, is diminished. I think that's an issue. And by the way, it's going to have, it can damage the reputation and it can damage the value of the companies who are trying to make good parts if they're working in a centrally compromised market. By the way, a call out in an excellent discussion that you just offered to the work that the Space ISAC is doing on supply chain risk management and supply chain risk management assurance. I think that is that is the Lord's work, and, and I'm delighted and grateful to you and to Forum Result. For, for getting that uh, getting that work done. Um, and I think we are going to make real progress there. But it is a real problem uh, in Sipian. I uh, attended a conference a few months ago, and a uh, PhD candidate from Virginia Commonwealth University took me through what can be done to compromise the integrity of additive manufacturing. We're going to use additive manufacturing, what sometimes we call 3D manufacturing, but additive manufacturing in two broad ways. We're going to use it to manufacture the stuff that goes up into space. We're already seeing that. I think it's what relatively is, is manufacturing rockets. And this is how we're going to manufacture in space. We're not going to be hauling coal, you know, cars of, of iron ore and coal up into orbit. We're mine asteroids. We're going to do 3D or additive manufacturing in space. A very subtle um, alteration in software can change the density of a part, causing it to fail, can change how a part is manufactured. And I think that that's a concern we should have about all 3D manufacturing. doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, it means we should get this right. It also means that imposing good security on the supply chain includes the security of the development environment in which the software is produced. And we've learned about that problem when you think about you know, MoveIt and, and, and SolarWinds and other things where companies that do a good job of cybersecurity consume software that has vulnerability. And then they're stuck with that problem. And it's not their fault, right? You know, it's, it's too, you know, you, 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 you're stuck with a problem you didn't create, 
and hopefully, you know, you you, you didn't for you, know, you didn't foresee it. That I think is a problem that we have to watch out for here. That's another reason why I think companies that are involved in the manufacture of space systems should pay attention not only to their own supply chains but to the security of their of, of their uh, uh, software development environments. I think we will see that. And again, I think that's going to be one of the findings, one of the recommendations I'm sure will emerge from the supply chain risk management group here at the Space ISO. So here's another critical question for the both of you, and, and Sam, you may want to take this first. But you know, with these space stations coming online in rapid succession, some predict that there could be as many as 12 commercial space stations within the next 10 years, right? So space stations, yeah, I see you laughing out there, but you know, it, it, these, are just, these are just predictions, you know? Um, <laughs> could get real crowded up there. But just think of it, even if you have half that number, right? You know, coming online within the next 10 years. That's going to make it possible to send greater numbers of humans to space. And they're going to live and work on orbit and beyond for longer periods of time, perhaps even permanently. And while we should celebrate more humans escaping gravity, space systems will not escape the problems that humans will be bringing with them and putting the value of space at risk. What will some of those problems perhaps be? Well, I haven't flown in space, and I suspect I never will. Um, the first thing to notice is that people are people, and whatever is the normal distribution of human behavior will at some point manifest itself if the population of people in space is large enough that it isn't highly selective. It will, at some point, in my, my guess is it will exhibit the same normal distribution of human beings and human behavior that we see on Earth. Virtuous, criminal, moral, immoral, attentive, less attentive, all of the various things that, all of the various characteristics that we're likely to see. Um, well, we see criminal activity in space. We get enough people up there, I suspect at some point we will. Um, will we see essentially, uh, will we see essentially insider threats in space systems? I hope not, but eventually, if we have enough people in space, conceivably, uh, we'll, uh, we will. And we're going to have to deal with this thing. Who will have jurisdiction over a space station in orbit? Will it be the country that launched it? I think probably, but I'm not sure. And who will have jurisdiction if somebody from another country is on that station? What if it's orbiting over Finland as opposed to orbiting over, over, you know, orbiting over South Korea? So I think there are a lot of issues related to jurisdiction in space that are not yet that well known. Now the Outer Space Treaty has helped us with some of it, but the Outer Space Treaty was formed before we thought about building cities in space, building cities that essentially were in an extraterritorial environment. And I think that's going to be an interesting problem, and I think the next generation of psychologists are going to have a wickedly interesting problem to work on. And, and I, 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 both pity and envy them at the same time. I'm going to answer it just a little bit differently, going back to the more technological aspects of, of the question. Um, uh, an approach we're taking at the Science Space Station is obviously we don't want to we don't want to build it for 150 billion dollars. Um, so we are looking very heavily into what it takes to build a commercially viable space station that retains technological uh, performance that the ISS has and above and beyond. 
So part of that is looking at commercial systems that you know, exceed requirements and leveraging that as much as possible. Same applies to cybersecurity, DevSecOps, and those kinds of considerations as well as we're building Space Station from literally from scratch. I mean, yeah, we're reusing a lot of the existing architecture for ISS, but a lot of the subsystems, you know, life support, avionics, GMC, um, RPOD, all that stuff we're designing and developing from scratch. Where I'm going with this is, let's say we have a future 12 space stations, not in 10 years, um, maybe 20. Um, this is an economy scale, right? So the more humans you send out, the, the more infrastructure you build, the more subsystems you build, the more times you build them from scratch over and over again. The supply chain becomes more robust. Parts, components, systems become commoditized. Um, something we're also building as part of our space station is no single point of failures. Right, because if, if there is a cyber incident where one of our subsystems is compromised, well, we don't want to have one life support system, we want to have two or more. So what I'm going again with this is, the, the ecosystem is going to evolve in a good way, and the more people we send, the more infrastructure we build, the more space we have, it's a good thing. Um, grows the economy, but it also makes it more resilient, makes it more secure. Um, so, you know, last thing I'll say is that there's always an association or has been an association of, oh, humans are involved, therefore it's complex, it's dangerous, expensive, we don't want to deal with it. What we're doing as a company, I think a lot of folks in this room and in the industry are, are doing is changing that paradigm where human space is a good thing, right? Like I said before, without humans there is no space economy, without humans there is no national goal in space. So we have to figure it out and get to a point where you have economy scale and associated benefits with redundancy, resiliency, and economics thereof is a good thing, and that's, that's the way to go. And so, while we're talking about humans in space, what are we going to do about human safety in space? I mean, you can think of it like perimeter security, your ADT. In the oceans, we have maybes, right? But what about space debris punching a hole and affecting environmental systems or more? And with all this value, what about space pirates? What if there's a kinetic attack on a space station? What then? Who should be in charge of a response? Who coordinates with who? What should be the response? Do you guys have, I mean, yeah. get grabbing. This, that, is, this is the last question. Uh, I will say you know, that from a side perspective, in an attack of ones and zeros, that is something we're looking at. That's, part, that's core to, it's, it's part of the end of our design and our build process. And that's what we're doing, what we're doing in the ISS today, ensuring capabilities to use a space station as a, as a hub for edge processing, but also as a um, fortress for cybersecurity, right? Because we know, we know to expect attacks of ones and zeros. Um, kinetic attacks, that, that gets into areas that I just don't want to touch on uh, from a policy perspective. It's not my, my forte, but you know, the, the, the Space Force exists for a reason, and there's definitely considerations that the Space Force is, is looking into as far as protecting commercial assets, and I think that's going to evolve in the next seven years. So it's not something we tend to worry ourselves about much, um, but I, I think there'll be an answer sooner or later. So. And I would agree with that. I think um, physical attacks, kinetic attacks on the countries, on, on space systems, which do belong to a specific country's uh, the company in a specific country are going to have to fall within the national defense requirements. And I am looking to um, 
the leadership that the United States has been taking, encouraging countries to join us in the Artemis Accords, which I think would help establish norms, at least for kinetic physical attacks on those systems, and for making it clear that not only are we adhering to those accords, but there are going to be consequences for those who undertake uh, attacks that would violate the norms associated with those accords. I think that will evolve over time. I think the number of space missions, space programs, and, and space stations may prove to be somewhat of a forcing function. So I'm not pessimistic about this. I think we will make progress. And now I'd like to invite everyone here presently and online uh, to thank Jason and Sam for joining me today here at the Value Space Summit. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavus Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.